We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Good evening, good evening, good evening. I'm glad you're here tonight. We still got a few uh, that are filing in. Um, we are so excited to have you tonight. We've got um, getting ready for a lot of great things in the life of our church. We got a uh, hundred. I think 142 or 144 people, um, students and adults, that are leaving uh, for camp this coming Monday. So they're going to Shaco Springs. It's going to be a, a great week. Got a, that's a lot of students and a lot of adults. And so you know you're praying for them. We're trying to finalize everything, get ready for VBS. So we're excited about that as well. We got kids choir going on tonight. There are a lot, a lot of fun things going on in the life of First Baptist Summit right now for you to be involved with and pray for, but I'm glad that you're here tonight. We're going to continue our study. Um, we've been talking about the words of Jesus, titled Written in Red, and as you know, since Easter, we've been talking about the words that Jesus spoke specifically after his resurrection, and so we're going to, um, we've got tonight and then next Wednesday night to finish up that subsection of the series, and so tonight we're going to take a look at a very short very interesting passage of scripture, um, one that I, I think gets glanced over a little bit, but as far as the practical implications about what it ought to mean for you and I and our relationship to God and our relationship to people, I think it's huge. So if you haven't already done so, if you have your Bibles tonight, take them and turn them with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, we're just going to look at verses 19 through 23 tonight. Um, John 21, verses 19 through 23 tonight. Um, did everybody get a listening sheet uh, when they came in? There should still be some out there. If you did not get a listening sheet, um, one of our fantastic young men will go get it. We need a couple. I got one, one over here. All right, two. How many more? Anybody, anybody else need one? All right, those are coming. We got a, we got a couple of coming this this direction those are on the tables uh, normally as you come in and so feel free to get those we do ask um, you're more than welcome to pick up more than one copy when you, when you come in but if you would if you're going to pick up several copies wait till you leave to pick up several copies so we make sure that we've got enough for the folks uh, that are in here um, but tonight I, I was thinking about something um, in, in studying this passage, and I wonder, and, and maybe this is a memory that's strange to have, but how many of you can remember the first time you got in trouble? And I, I don't mean with, with necessarily with your mom and dad, but, but maybe at school or at a function or at church, the first time you can remember another adult really getting on to you. I, I, I mean, I don't know that it was the first time, but I can remember this as vividly. I, I was pre-K, four years old. Um, I had been dropped off at school, and th this is not wasn't. I'm sure the first time, and I can promise you, it wasn't the last time. But this one was absolutely vivid in my mind. And we were getting ready to go to lunch, and I was standing in Miss Jordan's classroom. She taught my pre-K class. I could take you to the room. I could show you where I sat. And I got up, and we were making a line to go to lunch that was right across the hall. And so we were all bowed our head and we were gonna say the blessing before we went into the lunchroom 
So everybody bowed their head, and the, we prayed the blessing. And so while that is going on, I looked, and during that time, I realized that a girl that was in our class, in our little pre-K class, she did not close her eyes during the prayer. And in my four-year-old mind, that was a heinous sin. Like, this was not acceptable. So before we left, I raised my hand, and Miss Jordan called on me, and, I said, and she said, yes. And I said, you just need to know that Paige did not close her eyes during the prayer. Police of the preschool. And I'll never forget this. Miss Jordan asked me this question. How do you know? And it bothered—I still—it bothered me not just because I got in trouble. It bothered me because she got me. You know, like I knew right when she said it, I was like, I don't have a good answer for that. It actually, like, I remember thinking about that. I can remember that day being bothered the whole time about, not about her closing her eyes, but why I hadn't been smart enough to realize that by telling on her, I was exposing my own faults and problems. I, can, I mean, I remember that vividly. And, and so from that moment, I, I think there's something that, that comes out that we learn as preschoolers and a lot of lessons, but some of them stick with us. And, and here's one of them. There are just times in your life where you need to mind your own business. All right? It's a spiritual lesson. Doesn't mean we don't love other people or get involved in other people's lives, but sometimes we need to worry about what God has in our life and what He's doing with us and not all the time about what God's doing in other people's lives or how He's blessing other people. In John 21, I love this passage. It's just an incredible passage. You'll remember we've studied through this, this chapter together. Jesus has risen from the dead. They've had this incredible, miraculous catch of fish. And then following that uh, miraculous catch of fish, you'll remember that Jesus reinstates Peter in the, the reinstatement. He goes to Peter and asks him, do you love me? Three different times, he tells Peter to go and feed his sheep. And then um, he gives this prediction of Peter's life. He tells Peter what is going to happen to him, that he is going to die a martyr's death. And then at the end of chapter 21, as we pick up the story, I want you to see as it kind of jumps off the page, because we're going to start there in verse 19, just to make sure we've all got a little background. When after he tells him what he, Peter, what's going to, going to happen or to feed his sheep, what he's going to be called on to do, in verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted to, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God, and then he said to him, follow me. Now, what we know about Peter, and we've talked about this, is Peter would be ended up being martyred. He would be martyred and taken to be crucified. He would actually, church historians tell us, he, will be, he was crucified upside down, that when he was old, he was taken to where he did not want to go. And Jesus' prophecy came true. But what's fascinating is what Peter's response is next. Because remember, Peter's had a lot going on. 
I mean, we've gone from pulling out a sword and cutting off Malchus's ear to making a declaration that he'll never deny him. Then on the night of the crucifixion, he denies him three different times. Now, Peter's the one that's led them to go back to fishing. We've had a miraculous catch of fish. Jesus has met him on the seashore. Jesus has reinstated Peter. There's been a lot going on in his life. So at this point, Jesus makes this prediction and tells Peter what's going to happen to him. I want you to follow me, and I want you to know that when you follow me, your job is going to be to feed my sheep, but I also want you to know that this is not going to be an easy life. Um, if, you, if you didn't have any other text in all of the New Testament and you wanted to debunk most of, most of the false philosophy and that, that masks itself for theology today, that God's biggest, biggest desire is to give you a wonderful life or that God wants to give you your best life now, you could probably go immediately to the story of Peter and recognize that Peter, the apostle with the great confession, the confession on which the church was built, would also be an apostle that Jesus not only predicted, but came true on the prediction that he would die a martyr's death. But after this, you would think after all that Peter had gone through, that maybe at this point, Peter's going to eat a little humble pie. That maybe at this point, he's just going to kind of take his lumps for the first time, maybe not have to be the one who speaks. Maybe he doesn't have to lead the Bible study. Maybe he doesn't have to say something. Maybe it'd be better just to kind of chill out, let Jesus finish what he's going to say, and just kind of fade to the back for once. But oh no. Oh no. Peter immediately, after being humbled by being asked three different times, do you love me? Peter now makes an interesting comment. Watch this. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Now, make sure you, everybody knows that's John. That's how John refers to himself. This is John's gospel. So John is referring to himself, John the writer, the one whom Jesus loved. We know that, obviously, uh, John would be the one that when Jesus was on the cross, he said, this is now your son and this is now your mother, when he was talking to Mary and John, known as the beloved disciple. And so Peter looks over at him. Obviously, Peter and James and John were known kind of in the inner circle of the 12. They were the closest the, to Jesus and probably spent the most time together. And so um, we do know that, that even in their ignorance during Jesus' ministry, that there had been quarrels among them about who was going to be the greatest, all of those questions. So G with all of that little bit of background in mind, we're led to what Peter now does. He looks over and he sees John, and this is Peter's question. The one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked this question. Lord, what about him? What about John? You just said that I'm going to die and people are going to take me to a place that I don't want to go when I'm old, but, but you hadn't said anything about him. What, what's going to happen to John? Verse 22. Jesus. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? It's a pretty direct, pretty direct statement. You must follow me. So because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple wouldn't die. But Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? It's interesting. 
You know the last one that was left? John. Now that's not predicted here. It's just fascinating to me that every one of them was dead and John ends up on Patmos and he's the last one alive. So they all died probably still thinking that John was going to live forever. I don't know that that was part of the grand plan as far as a, in this moment if we can really look forward to, to try to pull that out. But I think it's fascinating to think about that in those moments Jesus makes the point that whatever it is that I want to do with you, Peter, that's between you and me. And whatever I decide to do with John, that's between John and I. Now, it's fascinating that we're talking about two of the greatest men as far as following Christ in the history of Christianity. You've got Peter, who made the great confession, who preached Pentecost, who was the leader of the early church. And then you've got the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, the one who is the author of the Gospel of John. He authored 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He authored, authored Revelation. You've got Peter who authored 1st and 2nd Peter. So we're talking about titans of the faith. But in that moment, Jesus said, and it's amazing because Peter would be revealed. Many things would be revealed to Peter. The Holy Spirit would come on him. Tongues of fire would fall on him. He would preach the gospel in power. Thousands of people would get saved. He would heal people at the beautiful gate. He, he would be a powerful preacher of the gospel. But it was none of his concern what God wanted to do with John. He's saying, I want you to worry about what it is that I have for you. Now, Peter goes and he asks this question. What about John? Have you ever asked a similar question? My guess is you have. Sometimes in our life, the first thing that we're worried about is, well, what about them? And sometimes it's not even Christian people. Every one of us at some point have seen evil people, wicked people, and sometimes people that just have no desire for the things of God, and we see them prosper and prosper and prosper, and it seems like blessing falls on them, and we're, we're wondering, how long is this going to last? What, what about them? And, and, and then sometimes in life, right? We see sometimes it's, it may be other Christians. Sometimes it's other people. Sometimes it's other people's kids. Sometimes it's how other people are doing. Sometimes it's what people think about other people. And so immediately, God's trying to work in us. But whether we say it audibly or not, our initial response is, well, what about that couple? Well, what about him? Well, what about them? And, and we need to hear today that some of you, the reason God is not doing more in your life is because you are spending so much time worried about what's going on in somebody else's life that God can't work in yours and you need to mind your own business and you need to start worrying about your own relationship with the Lord. And if God chooses to bless someone, that's His prerogative. And if God chooses to take away, that's His prerogative. But what we can't do is allow everything about our walk of faith to be judged on how everybody else is doing. And by the way, you don't even know how everybody else is doing. This is Wednesday night, so I've got a little bit more time and I can chase a few more rabbits. But some of you are absolutely cursed, cursed by social media. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. 
I'm not anti-social media. But I am anti the fact that most people spend time on social media and they end up being envious or jealous of what other people are posting on the internet or they let it affect their emotions, they let it affect their desires, they let it affect their opinions in ways that what people are putting out there online now becomes what feeds everything about my life. Well, maybe it's on social media or maybe it's in real, real life, but the issue becomes God has tremendously blessed you. He has done amazing things in your life. He's worked miracles in some of your life. He's brought healing in some of your life. Some of you are saved. There are some of you in here that are truly saved. Some of you have been blessed and you've been given children and you've been given grandchildren. You have roofs over your head. You have cars to drive. You have food in the refrigerator. And you have opportunities galore. But there are some people who will never enjoy any of it because you are so worried about what God's doing in John's life that you forget that God's got a job to do in yours. There's a huge lesson here when he speaks to Peter what it is that we need to be hearing about that. We were told as children to mind our own business. Now, you see there the question, or is we concerned about our faithfulness to the Lord as we are the lives and circumstances of the people around us? Um, I think far too often we are kept from what God desires to do in our lives because of some standard that we've put in our mind about how other people are living and how other people are getting along. Now, if everybody in here, and really everybody in general, would spend more of their time examining their own walk of faith, their own walk with the Lord, you take Peter, for example, incredible man of God, but it's safe to say in this place in John, Peter had enough to worry about. Right? Peter had just denied Christ three times. He had been reinstated. He had just experienced a miraculous miracle. He was going to be preaching Pentecost in just days. He was the leader of this ragtag group of disciples that was going to lead the greatest revolution that's happened in world history. Peter had enough going on. And I really believe that most of you listening to this sermon have enough going on in your individual lives and in your individual family and in what God's given you to take care of that if you didn't busybody yourself in everybody else's life, you'd still have enough going on. I've just gone to kind of meddling now, hadn't I? But this almost seems like it's a message that we're preaching to teenagers. But we give them a hard time, but most of the time we don't grow out of it. And it, it keeps infuriating us. And a lot of times, the people that you spend all of your time thinking about and worrying about, they're, number one, it's robbing your joy. And some of it, it's not like Peter and John. They had a good relationship. They were, they were friends. They were probably had some rough spots like everybody else does. But what drives me crazy to see in people's lives is that there are people that are consumed by worry about other people and other families and other couples and what other people have got going on in their life. And so it actually controls you, but it controls you in a way that sometimes the very people who you are 
envious of or jealous of or mad at or can't stand or all of those things, now those people control you. They own you because they set up a residence inside your little head and they're playing around. It's, it's like a, a monkey banging cymbals all the time. And some of them don't even know that. They don't even know how much control they've got over you because some of the people that you spend all your time worried about don't even, that may not even be on their radar. And so if we come back and we say, well, hold on a minute, I've got, I've got my own issues. I've got my, my own things I need to deal with. So when it comes to children, oftentimes, what do we often hear a child say when they're evaluating something another child got, another, something, uh, an opportunity that another child got, a gift that another child got, um, something that another child got allowed to do that they get no, didn't get allowed to do. What is a common cry among children? It's just not fair. How many of you have ever heard that? It's just, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. I got news. Life isn't fair, number one. But number two, it is audacious and dangerous for you to want God to be fair with you. Because if God was fair to you, he would kill you. Now that'll be something that somebody says, did, did, did I hear that right? If God was fair to you, God would kill you. Why? Because fairness and justice go hand in hand. Locke described justice as giving each man what they are due. What are men due? For the wages of sin is death. So justice or fairness would be you getting what you deserve, right? That's fair. Me getting what I deserve, that's fair. So I've got to be very careful about telling God that he's not acting fairly with me when the truth of the matter is, is that he's sovereign. And so what that means is that because he's sovereign, God can choose to deal with me differently than God chooses to deal with you. God can choose to bless me differently than God chooses to bless you. God can choose to give people gifts that he doesn't give other people and wealth that he doesn't give other people and abilities that he doesn't give other people and opportunities that he doesn't give other people. But the fact of the matter is, if we would spit, quit spending all of our time thinking about the fairness of how God has bestowed gifts and spend more time thinking about the gifts that he has bestowed on us, and the better question is not why didn't I receive this or why didn't I get this or why didn't this opportunity come my way. Here's a better question. Why did any of the things you do have come your way? It's all a blessing of God. And so when we start spending our time evaluating our own relationship, I'll, I'll, I'll give you just a, a little piece of what I think is really good relationship advice, especially when it comes to marriages. And, and this has a lot of implications flowing right from this passage. The majority of people, if they're having marital problems, I... I don't know. Statistically, I don't know. I would guess 80 to 90%. When people are having marital problems, if you talk to either one of the spouses, 80 to 90% of the time, I'm guessing, 
One of them is going to say something that sounds like this. If she would just, if he would stop, and so you can listen to that for forever. But what I've learned, and if most of you are old enough to know this, you cannot control other people. So let's just make it a given that spouse, somebody is not doing what they should or they're doing something they shouldn't. A better question, if you want things to get better in your life, is not what do they need to do different to make this marriage better. The better question is what do I need to do different to make this better? Because I can't control what they do, but I can control what I can do. So if I spend less time worried about what they're doing and more time worrying about what God's convicted me of, it's amazing how things begin to change. Now you take two people, and if both people think that way, instead of both blaming each other, but both taking personal responsibility for what needs to change, all of a sudden, you know what? Things begin to change. Because personal responsibility is huge. I think that's one of the areas that, that Jesus is hitting on here with Peter that we're missing in contemporary society is that we have almost done away with telling people that there is a need for taking personal responsibility. This whole issue of secularism and progressivism and woke generation and all the things that are going with that, most of that boils right down to telling people that they have to take no responsibility for their action. There used to be a time in history where you understood that if something didn't go right, it wasn't always somebody else's fault. It's not always your mama and daddy's fault. It's not always your ancestor's fault. It's not the government's fault. It's not the school's fault. A lot of times, it's your fault. And it's my fault. And when we see that, it begins to take responsibility. And when Peter, with Peter, John's point is, you need to take responsibility for what I am doing with you. How many of you just would say that you're at least fairly busy people? Like, i got some stuff going on. Do you think some of you are kind of busy? Some of you are like, I ain't got nothing to do. Uh, uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. But most of you got something going on. You got a little something going on. So, so we're, we find ourselves busy. But I really believe that, that even though most of the time now, people find their self-worth in their busyness. And we know that because in casual conversations with people, people's knee-jerk reaction is to tell you how overloaded they are. You notice that? That's the resume this, these days, is to make sure that everybody knows that you are pent back. I don't know when that changed in society, but it's like, I'm not worth anything if I'm not burning the candle at both ends, if I'm not stressed out, if I'm not anxious, and if I'm not depressed by all those things, then people are going to think I am not doing what I need to do. So most of the time, we hear that all the time. Well, let's take that at face value, and let's just say that everybody's telling the truth about how much they've got going on, how stressed out they are, how busy they are. Let's just say that's the truth. And I believe for most part it is. If that is the truth, 
then you have absolutely enough on your own plate to worry about. Don't you? You got enough. You've got enough. I got two kids. Some of you got more than that. It's all I can do. I got one wife. I love her to death, but it's all I can do. I only pastor one church, and y'all are all I can do. I love you. I, I don't, this isn't complaining. That's just reality. So if I spend my time trying to do the best job with the church God's given me to pastor, I don't have to worry about the guy that's pastoring another church. I dealt with this for a long time in ministry. People think, oh, well, ministers don't deal with that. You've lost your mind. Oh, well, well, oh, Lord, why is he getting more opportunities than I'm getting? Or, or why did this guy get to go to this church? Or why did that opportunity open up? And, and throughout ministry, you can end up in ministry or in your job or in my job. You can end up spending your whole life and never finding any contentment because you're more worried about what didn't come your way than doing a great job with the things that did. And I think that's important for us to spend some time really thinking about that. So, so let, let's finish up here with, with the last thing he said to Peter. When he comes to him and asks him, he says, Lord, what about him? And Jesus tells him, if, you want, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? But... Before Peter goes into this question and answer session with Jesus, do you see in verse 19, and then I'll be the last two words, what did Jesus say to Peter? Follow me. I love this. Do you know the first words that Jesus ever spoke to Peter? Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The three years that he spent with Jesus were bracketed by the same two words. Follow me on the front end, follow me on the back end. And really when it gets right down to it, that's all discipleship is. Follow me. You let me worry about everybody else. You let me take care of my relationship with them. But you, you, follow me. Pray with me. Lord, we've heard the cry that you've placed on our lives to follow you. So, Lord, we come before you with a heart of repentance just to say sometimes um, because of our flesh, we do become absolutely absorbed with what other people have going on and what's going on in their lives. And so, Lord, I pray that for some of us today, God, that you would just speak to our hearts and help us to understand that you have blessed us with an individual relationship with you. And you want us to continue to seek you, find you as we seek you with all of our heart so that, Lord, you can do in us what only you can do. So, Lord, I thank you that you decided to have any relationship at all with me. I thank you that you've blessed me in as many measures as you have blessed me. And so, Lord, I pray today for this church that we would be a people who have heard your directive to follow you and that we would understand that as a church, as individuals, that what you do with us is your sovereign plan. So we want to be clay in the potter's hands. And so we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.